Welcome to the podcast for the 2009 Forum of Incident Response and Security Team Conference in Kyoto, Japan. I'm your host, Martin McKay, and these interviews were recorded live at the conference between June 29th and July 3rd, 2009. For more information on the conference, please visit conference.first.org. And now for our interview in progress. Well, this is Martin, and I'm talking with Jonathan Hamm, Certified SANS Instructor, and Sherry Davidoff, who is the author of Philo Security. And today you, you folks gave a talk called uh, Proprietary Data Leaks. What exactly was your talk about? Well, we covered two different scenarios. We wanted to talk about um, the sort of the nightmare scenarios for security managers, which unfortunately are occurring with greater frequency. We talked about two situations um, where attackers with privileged access uh, gained access to information such as maybe social security numbers or credit card data or um, plans for your next company widget, whatever it is, from your database and exported it. Um, the first scenario was an attacker that had privileged physical access to your system, so maybe network administrators or building maintenance staff or janitors who have access to data centers or other critical equipment. And the second scenario was an attacker that has privileged logical access. That's what Jonathan went over. And he talked about um, exporting information uh, in ICMP packets um, and other means of covert data exfiltration. Well, when we're talking about physical access, are we talking about hard drives? Or are we talking about um, about printouts? What are we talking about exactly? We're talking about information that maybe resides on servers or workstations within your company. Maybe it's not well tracked. Um, it's things that employees have to have access to to do their jobs. But employees can take that information and download it onto USB devices or burn it onto CDs and walk it out of the building. How do you prevent that from happening? Um, and how do you detect it when it does? Uh, and how do you respond appropriately to situations was really the focus of the presentation today. And Jonathan, when Sherry's saying that you're talking about ICMP, we're actually talking about people tunneling out through ping and, and using that or, or other ICMP uh, protocols to, to send data out? Absolutely. Uh, ICMP tunneling has been around for a very long time. Uh, as, as goes f as far back as uh, over a decade ago when uh, uh, Demon, a.k.a. Route 9, mentioned the uh, technique in a frack article um, with a uh, tool he called Loki, after the god of mischief, and actually published some proof of concept code to use ICMP echo requests and replies to be able to tunny, tunnel any arbitrary data or, uh, or access uh, through any systems that allow ICMP traffic, which is which is quite commonly allowed. So uh, that's that's just one aspect. We've seen lots of other sorts of covert tunneling of data, um, either to be able to allow inbound access, or in the cases that we've seen a lot of lately, uh, to be able to push data outbound in a way that uh, is hoped won't be detected by the good guys. So we're not talking about things that are, are potential, things that are ideas. We're talking about real-world scenarios that you've seen in practice. Absolutely. And tunneling data across ICMP is something that's been around for um, over a decade at least. It's also something that we talk about in our class, how to detect when it's occurring, and how do you extract the data from those packets. Um, we also talk about how to extract data from uh, DNS tunneling. Um, and this is particularly interesting because tools such as Wireshark don't automatically allow you to extract uh, information from null records, um, which is where tools like iodine store the information as it's exported out. So you, you brought up something very important is that the both of you are starting a new SANS course, which is, is Network Forensics at SANS. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely love to. 
Um, <clears throat> a little while ago, SANS came to me and uh, asked if we could put together a course to extend their forensics offering. Um, it's, uh, they, they've long had a sort of a flagship course on file system forensics and uh, criminal investigation, which covers uh, just about every aspect of digital forensics as performed on hard drives and hard drive images. And it's quite a fantastic course, but, if, but uh, that's not always the situation. Uh, occasionally, and in fact quite often and quite commonly these days, a uh, breach occurs and the system involved in the breach may no longer be available if it ever was, or perhaps the hard Hard drives uh, has uh, volume encryption and the key is no longer available or if it ever was. So uh, our, our tagline for the course is no hard drive, no problem. What we instead focus on is uh, all of the uh, surrounding devices and network infrastructure that might contain and often does contain actionable evidence that can be acquired and analyzed and be put together to build a very successful forensics case. So we're talking about switches and routers and DHCP servers servers and web proxies and sometimes network-based IDS and just about anywhere where we can uh, find evidence that lingers. Well, in a lot of cases, though, you're not seeing full full packet capture or you're, or you're not having centralized logging. How do you deal with that when there's no sort of centralized uh, uh, repository for that information? Well, it's important for forensic investigators to understand all the different places that information can be stored within a network. Um, and a lot of times it's places you might not expect, such as uh, the Squid web cache, for example, in a web proxy stores a lot of information. It can store um, web access records for an entire organization. So sometimes, um, Companies may not think that they have central logging, centralized logging, but simply by virtue of the equipment that they've deployed, there are actually relatively few central servers and pieces of network equipment that store a great deal of aggregated information regarding their users' behaviors. And so what, part of what you're teaching people to do is take that, those various uh, data points and, and aggregate them again into something that, that they can use for, as a trail. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the aggregation and correlation, even if it has to be done manually, can often uh, render some very, very rich picture of what's going on on the network. And as you pointed out, Martin, you often don't have full packet captures. It's it's very rare that you're going to walk into an organization that's capturing all the packets. Uh, at most, you might have a couple that were captured by an IDS system. And in fact, that's sort of the scenario. Uh, one of the scenarios that we paint in, in our class is maybe you've got a couple of packets, but not very many. And what else can you do with that? And, and the aggregating the information. Um, we, we liken it to uh, file system forensics and hard drive forensics is sort of like doing the autopsy on the body and the uh, network forensics approach that we that we are uh, proponents of uh, is, is looking at crime scene investigation for all the things around where the body was found and what, what sorts of analysis can be done there. And as with the real world, um, sometimes you may not know where the body is exactly, especially with so many mobile devices. A lot of times you don't start out with a hard drive because you don't know where it is. You might have had a wireless device uh, come onto your network and commit some crime and maybe take some data and then leave. And so um, you can track these devices down through the network. They leave footprints all over the place. You can identify the operating system, the network card, often the user, lots of information that allows you to fingerprint that device and will then help you identify the the user and then find it. One of the things you mentioned earlier, Sherry, was um, actually the physical side of it and, and how easy it is now for people to, to take data out of the environment with simple stuff that we all carry, like our phones. 
Yep, I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, one of the demonstrations that we did today in the talk was using an ordinary Motorola Razor, a fairly old phone, it's been around two, three years, to uh, take data off of a server and encrypt it and walk out the door with it. And so uh, the question is, first of all, how can you detect that? Once you detect it, um, how can you respond to it appropriately to contain the damage um, and then eradicate the problem? I think you also mentioned something about uh, about some of the very creative solutions that people are coming up with to to bring data into and out of the the environment. Something about a coin, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Um, you know, we used to uh, have uh, very uh, rigorous uh, contraband checking for people entering and leaving facilities, where we'd look to make sure they had no laptops with them and and uh, and no USB drives and the like. But as we saw in, in Sherry's demonstration today. Uh, it comes down to a very, very small SD chip inside of a phone that can be removed and placed inside of, as you, as you mentioned, Martin, a coin. You can uh, go online to ThinkGeek and other places now and, and uh, find where people will sell you actual real coin currency that's been split open, hollowed out, and can be used to, uh, to hide very small uh, SD microcards that can contain a large, large amount of data these days. So uh, maybe, as Sherry points out, it's the uh, cell phone that's in the person's pocket that's exfiltrating the data, or maybe it's the coin in the pocket next to the cell phone that's got the data on it. Hard to tell. One of the places that I think this is going to start coming out is not just in enterprises, but also uh, at, for example, border crossings. The United States um, has had some instances recently where travelers have had their laptops and other devices seized. So I wonder if we're going to start seeing people with things like uh, 32 gigabyte micro SD cards um, smuggling these the way we do the way they do other contrabands, uh, perhaps swallowing them or things like that. Ooh. Um, but but that also does, you bring up a good point. I mean, how does encryption involve come into this because I know that as a secure professional who often carries sensitive information on my heart on my laptop I encrypt it with uh, PGP uh, desktop so from the moment it boots up it's encrypted how are you going to tell the difference between that and somebody who's doing nefarious things and has a, an encrypted partition on a drive well, uh, in encryption can be used by good people for good purposes, and it can be used by the bad guys to uh, hide what they're doing. That's that's for certain. And it, and as a uh, as a forensic analyst from from that perspective, uh, encryption can be very very difficult to deal with. But uh, one of the things that we at least covered today in our in our discussion is that if someone's using encryption, that alone can be an interesting and useful thing to know. It can help us in our uh, analysis and response of incidents, and it's really fairly simple. Uh, there's some straightforward ways to be able to determine if encryption is in use uh, through frequency analysis and, and drawing of histograms while looking at data chunks. So we can at least detect if encryption's in use fairly easily, although it's not always easy, easy to decrypt what's trying to be hidden from us. And we're talking some, some fairly deep technical stuff, and quite frankly, in a lot of cases, if they have an IDS or if they have a centralized log system, that's a big improvement over what they had a year ago. So uh, do you think that people are going to actually be put, putting these sort of measures into place more and more? Well, I hope so. I hope we start to see people, um, in particular, keeping better track of what devices are being connected to their servers and workstations. Right now, um, most companies are flying blind. They set systems up, they don't baseline them or uh, figure out exactly what devices are connected, and then they can't tell if anything has changed. And I don't think we've seen any organizations that are centrally tracking devices that are connected. Um, 
when you do have someone plug a USB device into a computer, a lot of times you'll see a new device showing up. If you see someone plugging, if someone plugs a keylogger in, you'll see a new device, but it won't necessarily, it's not going to come up as keylogger or an obvious manufacturer. It might be something fairly subtle. So sometimes the best thing you can look for is simply that a device such as a keyboard has been disconnected and then has been reconnected again. Um, because then you'll get even devices that aren't showing up in the device listing, you'll be able to detect that. Well, when will people be able to take your course on network forensics? Why, thanks for asking, Martin. Um, it's a, uh, as we mentioned, it's a brand new course. We uh, ran it for the very first time in, uh, in Washington, D.C., or in Baltimore, actually, uh, just a few weeks ago. And we are scheduled to run it again at uh, Network Security, SANS Network Security 2009 in San Diego in September. Uh, it is a three-day boot camp currently. So if you're interested, show up and be ready to work some long hours because it is chock full of lots of great information and tons of hands-on exercises dealing with just about every device that we can get our hands on from network taps and switches uh, all the way through to uh, application level proxies and uh, an entire virtual network for every student to play with and to do the analysis on. So uh, September, I, I can't tell you the exact dates, but uh, you can go to sans.org and find network security or you can go to jhamcorp.com, which is my website, and, and I've got a link to it right off the front page. Well, since we're talking about websites, Sherry's, what's yours? Uh, I have a blog called philosecurity.org. I like to talk about the intersection of security and privacy and how the devices and the technology that's being deployed impact um, our digital rights and really everything we do. Jonathan Hamm, Sherry Davidoff, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the podcast for the 2009 FIRST Conference in Kyoto, Japan. For more information on FIRST, please visit their website at www.first.org. I'm your host, Martin McKay, and for, to hear more of my podcasts, please visit netsecpodcast.com or my blog at www.mckyay.net. Thank you very much. <laughs>